Today we're talking about the wrath of God. In the 70s, no one was talking about God. And all of a sudden, a series of articles came out that was eventually put into a book. You may have heard of it. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And it ended up having a profound effect. In fact, nobody had really written on God in a profound way to expound who he is since Tozer had done it in the 40s. And so J.I. Packer came out with a series of articles. It's very interesting in his article on the wrath of God. He says, when's the last time you ever heard this? When's the last time that you turned on a preacher and you heard the wrath of God? It was spoken about, an entire sermon devoted uh, to that subject. Now, that's not what caused me to do that, but I found it interesting that as I was preparing it, that's what I came across when I was reading some of his thoughts about this. And the reason is, is because no one wants to think about wrath. No one wants to think about what it is for God's anger to be poured out. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be able to do a subject like this justice. We are going to look at a few scriptures. Uh, since I am sick, I am going to play the sympathy card and preach long. <laughs> Just because I'm sick doesn't mean I don't want to preach. My wife said, do you think you should do something else this morning? I said, no, not at all. <clears throat> I went outside and thought about it and prayed about it. And I'm good. I want to show you a profound picture. I thought this was interesting. Mitch, can we show the first picture? It's probably one of the bravest people I've ever seen. This is in Oxford, in England. This is during a gay pride demonstration. <clears throat> You've got one solemn brother, and I'm praying that he's not Jehovah's Witness, even though I see the backpack here, right? Jesus died for you. <clears throat> Can't help but to admire this man. Sometimes when we drive around town, we see the guys that are on the side of the road. You ever stop to talk to them? I have. No? They make us feel uncomfortable. Sometimes they make us feel uncomfortable because they're out doing what we should be doing. Now, I don't know if you've seen for as far as the capital is concerned for Madison. This is the first time in state history that we've flown an LGBT flag from the state capital. <clears throat> Everybody seen that? I choose just to say that I affirm the Noahic Covenant because the rainbow was ours first. <clears throat> Hopefully you can agree with that position. But here's the interesting thing about this. And I think this is important because as we move forward, especially just real quick to give you a heads up on July 14th and July 28th, we are going to be talking very graphically about the nature of se sexual degradation in our culture. And so Children's Church has been open to any kids where parents, if you feel like you want to send your kids and them not hear some of that stuff, that's fine. We want to respect that and, and, and champion you as the disciples of your homes and make that available. But on July 14th and 28th, we're going to be talking in depth about that and showing from the scriptures why it's wrong. If you want to use that as an avenue, please do. Here's what disturbs me about this. As we're told, well, it's just a community of misunderstood people. Well, we're just different. Well, we're just unique. Well, who are you to impose your law on us? And, and here's the thing. <clears throat> if the evidence of that argument was seen, I could agree with it. But I can't. And here's the reason why. Show the next picture. Why did this have to be brought into it? 
if it's a positive movement, if it's a neutral stance, if it's just a means of self-expression, if it's just the natural evolution of societal norms, then why would you drape Jesus in a flag for those things? These ladies don't seem too ashamed by it. In fact, everybody seems rather happy to be there. If we want to be nitpicky, they could have got a browner Jesus, don't you think? I mean, he was Jewish, right? Guys, you got to laugh. I have no hope up here. <coughs> I look at a picture like this, and I think God's wrath is coming. It's not popular. Why can't we just talk about his love? I'll tell you why. Because we talk about his love. We do that. But we don't balance it. We make Jesus all love. Next thing you know, we've painted him in a field somewhere smoking weed with Bob Dylan. That's not Jesus. Love becomes a distortion. Love becomes redefined. When gay marriage was passed by the Supreme Court to be allowed in all 50 states, the projection was love wins. Is that what happened? That's not what happened at all. We'll touch on that more. I don't want to get too much now. But guys, if you have ever taken a moment to look at this world for any hope, don't. Stop. It's not there. There's as much hope in this world as there is in my flesh. Well, I just have to remain positive about it. Don't. Stop remaining positive about it. It's not going to get any better. This is why we fix our eyes on a Savior. He came to save, and that word save has weight. He is here to rescue, to deliver, not to be mocked, not to be defamed, not to be slandered, not to be redefined by the culture. He is truth. He doesn't need redefining. Everything else needs to be redefined according to him. And he has made it very clear, wrath is going to come. He came the first time to save sinners, yes? That's not why he comes a second time. He comes to judge, to make war. That's why he comes. We've been studying three attributes of God. There are many throughout this passage. We've been taking this passage slow. I hope that you're reading it throughout the week. I hope that you were able to read the Job sections last week. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, if you're a little notebook, and if you need a notebook, would you raise your hand if you want to take notes? Pete's back there. <clears throat> but you can write down some things. But I want to give you some homework for this week, if you would mind doing some devotional time in these passages. Because I want you to see what a lifestyle looks like that wards off the wrath of God, and it is a view of King Josiah. Anybody need a notebook? Raise your hand. Everybody good? Okay. I think we're good, Pete. Oh, up here. <clears throat> I want to give you this passage, Second Chronicles 34 and 35. If you would just read 34 and 35, King Josiah doesn't meet a good end, but when he is in power... He takes advantage of his awesome privileged position and he leads reforms throughout the kingdom of Judah. It is excellent. And so I encourage you to read that, meditate on it over and over and over and see the steps that are taken, how a righteous life is enacted to lead a wayward nation of people back to their God. And it comes with repositioning the people towards 
God Almighty and doing away with the things that take us away from him. Decisive action of personal responsibility. It's very important. Let me give you a definition of wrath, just so you know what it is. And this is my own definition. I didn't copy it from anybody, but I want to share it with you. Wrath is the righteous reaction of God. Wrath is the righteous reaction of God toward the repeated evils of mankind. Wrath is the righteous action, reaction of God. You can see it on the screen if you want to look. Towards the repeated evils of mankind enacted only, and I think this is very important for us to realize, enacted only after a time of warning and grace. It is enacted only after a time of warning and grace. In fact, we have books that deal with this entire subject, starting in Isaiah and dealing with Mal- and ending with Malachi. All of the prophets, major and minor, deal with the fact of if you do not serve Yahweh, wrath will fall upon you. There are two ty- types of wrath. There's an act of wrath. There's a passive wrath. Everything that we're going to be looking at from Romans 1, 18 through 32 deals with the passive wrath of God. So we're going to spend weeks on that idea. But it's important that we go over the active wrath of God. <clears throat> the active wrath of God is the fact that he is taking the initiative to outpour his anger actively against people. You probably know this from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're probably familiar with this as he splits the kingdom out of Solomon's son's hand because of Solomon's waywardness and idolatry. It's important to understand that wrath is an equal attribute of God. Wrath is God's anger regarding sin. Wrath is poured out perfectly because God is perfect himself. It is always at the right amount. It is always exact in punishment, always properly dispensed because Yahweh is all-knowing and he's the one who sets the standard, that's his righteousness, and is able to express his anger with full control and in precise rage without any trace of injustice. God never gets better and he never gets worse. He does not diminish and he will never improve. He is the very definition of perfect excellence all the time. And because of this, he executes his wrath perfectly. We all know the verse, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, right? Don't avenge yourselves. Leave room for the Lord to do it. Why? Because the Lord will avenge you perfectly. He can't do anything that is a part of his person. He will do so perfectly. Now, Mitch, you've got a series of slides there that are numbered, and I want to show you how the wrath of God connects to the other attributes we've seen of his power, his omnipotence, and his righteousness, and how you can't have one without the other. You've got to put them together. God's wrath is God's judgment. All judgment is according to a standard, and God's standard is his righteousness. Does everybody remember that? When we say God is righteous, we're talking about a standard, yes? Wake up, guys. Remember, you guys are my cheerleaders today. Pep talk. 
Okay, pom-poms, whole deal. Yay, rah. Okay, just make sure. So now, where does that go to? Let's go to the next one. God's righteousness is displayed in his justice. Justice is always discharged with ability. You have to have authority to be able to do so. And this ability is God's omnipotence or the fact that he is all-powerful. He is the one that's the authority to be able to do that. Go to the next one. In order to discharge his wrath perfectly, God must be aware of all things. This means that God is necessarily omnipresent everywhere at all times. There's never a place where he is not. David said, even if I go down to Sheol to the grave, you are there. But not only that, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows every side of the factor that's under his consideration. And so what I want us to see is the idea of what does the Bible describe as wrath, especially in an active manner. Do me a favor and turn with me to John 3, 36. I consider it a blessing that it's harder to see the clock from up here. Appreciate it, Roger. I knew I could count on you. John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But, here it is, the wrath of God abides. Same word as John 15, abides, remains on him. Now, there are two things that want to trip people up about this verse. Number one, the idea of, okay, wait a second. But he who does not obey the Son, we have to obey. Is that what you're talking about? Is it a works thing here? Put your finger here. Turn with me over to John 6. And just look real quick so that you can understand. Number one, the context won't let you come to that conclusion because John says, believe, believe, believe. This is also helpful. John 6, 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do? Notice it's a works question. So that we may work the works of God. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who is sent, who he has sent. Everybody see that? So when we talk about obeying, we're talking about believing in Jesus. Why is that? Because that's the right thing to do. By believing, you no longer have God's wrath on you. Now go back to 3 and look at 18 real quick. Chapter 3, 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been what? Judged already, or some of your translations will say condemned already. The wrath is still on him. The wrath abides on him. Has been judged already because, and here's the reason why, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Wrath abides on those who do not believe. God's hand is against them especially with heightened revelation where they've heard the gospel and they reject the gospel. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. When we share the word of Christ, people are now held accountable. If they do not believe, God's wrath is against them. How about this one? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Now let's read 1, 2, and 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember this. Dead does not mean ceasing to be. Dead means separated. You were separated in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air. In other words, the enemy who has authority over the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, here it is, by nature, not just birth, but nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, because of the way we used to live our lives before we came in contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing that we had earned in eternity was the wrath of God. That was the bill that we were running up with Him. We were children of wrath. And notice the reasons why there in verse 3. The lusts of our flesh. We formerly lived in them. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Whatever you thought to do, you could just do it. Why care? Who's it going to hurt? It's not hurting anybody but you. You can do whatever you want to. He says, no, no. By doing that, you've earned yourself God's wrath. Our very nature deserves God's hot displeasure. How about turning over to Colossians chapter 3? You guys glad that I'm much more tame this morning? Thanks, Roger. Roger, you're earning an abundance of blessing this morning, I tell you. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 is some of the most beautiful scripture if you are discouraged or depressed in this world. Because it calls for us to put our minds, set our minds at the right hand of God where Christ is seated and the fact that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Man, I can't think of a better place to be than right now, knowing that it's a present reality, that I am hidden with Christ in our Father. But verse 5 says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. What does dead mean? Notice that. And he's writing to Christians. Christians... Consider the members of your earthly body, your flesh, as separated from immorality. That word means fornication. It is talking about sexually heinous acts. It says here, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why? Verse 6, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Those are the things that asks for God's outpouring anger. How about Matthew 3? Matthew chapter 3, we find John the Baptist baptizing with the baptism of repentance. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees decide they're going to come and pay him a visit and see what's going on. If you look at Matthew 3 verse 7, and this is a very revealing comment. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice that John the Baptist understood that the ministry he had been commissioned with was integral to the idea of wrath being there. You could not escape it. He understood that his ministry was going to be an outpouring of wrath on unbelieving people. Now you say, I don't necessarily see that in his ministry. Well, with the rejection of the Messiah comes a means of wrath that was probably not expected. And it was a dispersion of the people in AD 70. 
But what else is interesting is notice that because John the Baptist preached the kingdom, the idea that Jesus coming to establish the kingdom was not a concept that could be separated from the wrath of God. When he returns, that's exactly what will happen. Wrath will be poured out. In the end times, he will execute it perfectly because the entire world, for the most part, has stood in opposition to him. Let's see this. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke 21. There's a seven-year period known as the Tribulation. The first three and a half years is a false peace. This is the time when the man of lawlessness will be rising, largely undetected, into power. The church will have already been raptured at this point. But when he stands in the Holy of Holies of the rebuilt temple and he declares himself to be God and says, worship me or die, you will see three reactions from the Jews. Some will run to the hills and find safety. Some will be slaughtered because they weren't able to make it. And some will look at the Antichrist and wrongly assume that he is their promised Messiah that they are still waiting for to this day. This is what makes a ministry like Jews for Jesus so important. So the Jewish people will realize your Christ has already come and you need to believe in him because he is Yahweh. He is God. But when we pick up this idea in the great tribulation, that three and a half year middle point when this happens, look at verse 23 here. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. For they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Notice great distress in verse 23 notice wrath to this people that's what the tribulation will be characterized by it'll be a time of murder and war it's a time when the weak will not be spared it is a time of captivity in fact you see this Uh, you don't have to turn there but if you want to write it down mitch would you bring up revelation 6 and if you wouldn't mind let's look at 15 too can we do that real quick Mitch always loves it when I throw him a verse I didn't originally give to him. That's what makes him a gracious man back there. 15, 16, 17, let's look at that. I'm sick, don't be mad. Flutter my eyelashes at him, maybe that'll work. If you want to write it down, Revelation 6, 15 through 17. It says here, then the kings of the earth... And the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath, the wrath of the lamb. This is the breaking of the sixth seal and this is when The sky is rolled back like a scroll and you actually are able to look into another dimension that is called heaven where the throne room of God is. And as they see the Lord on the throne and the lamb slain at his right hand, they cry out for rocks to kill them. This is how crazy it gets. They think that death will save them from God. 
God is on the other side of death. And His wrath will be poured out. Not only that, but verse 17. For the great day of their wrath, both the Father and the Son, has come. And who is able to stand? Answer it, church. Who can stand against the Lamb? The Lamb's wrath, no one. No one can do it. Thankfully, I love a verse like this. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. If you're familiar with this, this is a rapture passage from 4, 13 unto 5, 11. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our glorification, our future salvation is what we're talking about. It's not talking about justification or sanctification. It is talking about the guarantee of our glorification. We won't be here during that time, that outpouring of wrath. We will be spared. We will be saved from that. Here's another one. Mitch, Revelation 19, if you could bring that up when Jesus comes back. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. God's fierce wrath against people who constantly rejected him, who were facilitating and cultivating a society that decided to binge upon godlessness. Turn with me to Genesis 6, one of the earliest outpourings of God's wrath is seen in the flood during Noah's time. I remember we used to not live very far from where Ken Ham bought the plot of land in order to set up the ark. He fought in legal battles for a long time to try to get that plot of land. And the reason why people don't want it there is it's a spiritual matter. Let's be honest. It's not the fact that they had a a big problem with a large wooden barge being set up in the middle of a land somewhere. It's the fact that it speaks of judgment. It is the idea of whenever God had had enough and he decided to outpour his wrath upon people. Look at chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Look what it says here. Then Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky. For I'm sorry that I've made them. Notice that God's wrath was the suitable means for how to deal with the people that had fallen in that condition. Let me ask you a question. You think that's where we're at now in society? It's almost frightening, isn't it? It's almost frightening to think that we're at that point where wrath is going to come. We're guaranteed. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity is God's already told us how it's all going to wind down the pipe. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear at all. But we do have an important message to let other people know the wrath of God is coming. That's not popular. You might lose some friends. You might. Or they might listen to you and avoid the wrath of God. To me, it's worth it. 
seems worth it. What is God's heart in all this? Turn with me to Ezekiel. God's heart in this matter. Is he vengeful and just can't wait to put people through the ringer? Is he kind of mulling his hands over, saying, gimme, 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 gimme. I just can't wait to get those dirty sinners in the in the squeezer and squish them. I would say far from it. Ezekiel 18. Look at verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Says Adonai Yahweh. Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. How about verse 32? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares Adonai Yahweh. Therefore, repent and live. Therefore, shun evil and turn to God. I will tell you this, that message is not any different than what's needed today. To call people from their evil and to turn to God. That's why I have admiration for that man who held that sign in the midst of that rally. You may not have liked what he said, but you couldn't doubt his heart in saying it. Do me a favor and turn over to Ezekiel 33. I wasn't planning on going here, but hey, I'm sick. Ezekiel 33.10. If you're familiar with this passage, you know it's the passage about the watchman. About how a watchman is responsible for seeing the danger that is oncoming and warning the people of the judgment that's about to befall them. And if the watchman will be faithful in warning the people, the watchman will be spared. But if the watchman sees calamity coming and does not warn the people, then the blood of those people is upon his head. In verse 10, Now as for you, son of man, and that's Ezekiel, Say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us. Now that's not anything new, right? Sin brings judgment. We understand that. Sin sin brings death. And we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares Adonai Yahweh, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. And then he asks a haunting question. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? In other words, if you know judgment is coming, if you know there's nothing you can do to stop it, if you know that wrath is certain, But if you know that rescue has been provided, why would you not get in the boat? Why would you not get in the boat? Why would you not turn back from the evil that you want to do? Do you realize, and this may be you, I don't know. Do you realize that there are people who are involved in such evil things that when they hear of the deliverance that God has provided for them in Christ Jesus our Lord by dying on a cross, a death he didn't deserve, they scoff at it. It's not real. I don't believe that. 
And by making such statements, they've asserted themselves as the authority for all things eternal. Have you ever seen hell? I haven't. Have you ever seen heaven? Me either. And yet we have people that want to take a stand as being reality checkers, truth tellers, of saying, no, that's not true. I don't need to be saved. Do you realize that God's heart is pleading with people to not meet the end that they deserve? God wants to save you and I from what we deserve. Notice he says in verse 12, And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. In other words, if he lived righteous, but he capitulated to a point to where he wanted to entertain transgression instead, no hope for him. Notice it says here, And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. And notice there's a personal responsibility involved. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. When I say to the righteous that he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity. In other words, it wasn't really about a righteousness in response to God. It was about a righteousness that was self-righteous is the idea. Or let me put it this way. I'm okay with God because I'm a good person. You ever met that person? Maybe that's you. Me and God are good. You're not good. There's none that's good. Not one. There's none who's righteous. There's none who seeks after God. All are altogether unworthy and deserving of nothing short of damnation. And there is no help. And there is no hope. A part of the abundant and gracious love of Jesus Christ giving of himself so that we don't have to meet that end. Why would we not turn and live? Why have we not been the watchman and encouraged our friends to turn and live, to encourage our family to turn and live? Don't you want them to live? Do you want to be in a place where they are not? And knowing that it's because of your failure to tell them that they are there. I do not want that on my head before a holy God. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Notice verse 14, but when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he's taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensures life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He's practiced justice and righteousness. He shall surely live. Yet for your fellow citizens say, the way of Adonai is not right. It is their own way that is not right. In other words, they'll mock up and they'll ridicule the position of the Lord, his word against this. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he shall die in it. Verse 19. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, He will live by them. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel. And remember this. Israel is God's dearest chosen people. And yet they were not exempt from his wrath. 
God used his wrath to discipline them, to be poured out on them, to get their attention, to say, stop what you are doing and look to the Savior and live. He says, I will judge each of you according to his ways. Now make no mistake, Israel had an incredible amount of revelation to the truth. And they were personally responsible to respond to it. For us living in the church age, we have an amazing thing that has been poured forth in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's grace. It is God's favor, despite what we deserve. It is a person who had never done anything wrong, being perfectly God and perfectly man, and yet dying the death and execution means for a criminal. He pours out his blood, and even in the midst of it, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Do you see God's heart in relation to wrath? God's love is the only rescue from a certain wrath that is to come. Because he is God, because he sets the standard, wrath has to come. Because we are all helplessly and hopelessly sinful. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Let's do this because this is always fun. Let's close our eyes. And I'm going to ask you to do something painful. I want you to think about a friend or a family member that you know the wrath of God is abiding on them at this moment because they have not believed. Think about the things that they're involved in. Think about how your mind wants to rationalize what a good person they are. Surely God would have mercy on them. They always try to help people. They're always considering others better than themselves. And yet deep down we know that is the greatest lie that Satan has ever pulled. is making us think that there is something of worth in self that God should look upon and excuse all of the wrong that we do. God knows we can't save ourselves. And he knows it at the price of great personal expense. He cannot excuse sin. And what is most profound to ponder about the cross is that all sin has been paid for. Knowing this person that you have in your mind, and either they haven't heard to believe, or they have heard and they persist in unrighteousness. Know that God's heart towards them is, why would you die when you don't have to? Know that God's heart is that he has no pleasure. There's nothing satisfactory about the death of the wicked. That he desires salvation. And that you and I are his instruments to the world. To speak into the lives of these people that we're thinking of right now about their need for rescue and deliverance. Father God, we all need to have a conversation. First, we need to have a conversation with you. And maybe we haven't taken the certainty of your coming wrath seriously. That we have been people who have tried to see the best in everyone, but have used that as an excuse to not share the gospel with them. We usually phrase this in, well, I think they're saved. I think 
they're a believer. Father, encourage our hearts to get past that road bump and to speak into their lives the beautiful love that you have for people, the rescue that you've made available, the hope that you've provided, the deliverance that you've set forth, that the blood of the Son has washed all sin away. Father, how wonderful it is to be saved from the wrath of God, to know with certainty because of all that Jesus has done in his perfect work. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us. And how he wants to love people through us. Father, give us ears to hear that your spirit would sow this word into our hearts that we not forget it. Wrath is certain and wrath is coming. But Jesus saves. And we pray all this in his glorious and awesome name. Amen.